Praise God. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to Romans chapter 12. And we are in a very transitional point in the series in Romans, a powerful one. Aren't you glad that you're part of a family? How many are glad you're part of a family? Come on, if you're here. Okay, if you're not, uh, well, you're part of this family. Okay, the family of God. And that's what Paul is talking to us about today. He's talking about love and unity in the family of God and how significant that that unity is. And he just finished telling us, uh, remember, in verses 1 and 2, to be nonconformists. He said, don't be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed. The J.B. Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But transforming the mind of, of what is what we talked about last week. And mind transformation comes by the prompting of the Spirit to meditate upon and venerate the Word of God. Like we read the Bible and we, we let it soak into our spirit and then the Holy Spirit communicates to us the will of God through that word. And that's what we learned, we saw last week, that when we do that, we understand the will of God. And um, we, it's very different from the world. We're, we're always being asked to conform to the ideas of this world and to just be like everyone else, the world's values and their systems, and we're told to be nonconformists. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Um, he said, don't be like them. Be a nonconformist, and fear of the crowd is what makes people conform to the world. And God has called us not to conform. And people are afraid and often to stand up and live a different way, go to a different direction in their life because they're concerned that they might get a bad uh, social media uh, response. You know, <laughs> somebody may dislike it on Facebook or you know, uh, Insta chat or whatever you know you have, uh, Twitter. Um, They'll give you a bad tweet, or they won't talk to you anymore, or they'll begin to think of you in a different light. But friend, our concern is not with so much the thinking of this world. It's to not be conformed, but transformed. And so um, to this is not a church where you drop your critical thinking at the door. You come in, right, with the Word of God, and we evaluate what the Bible says and what is being said, and we biblically weigh the concepts, and we glean from it the theology, we, we, we confront it with Scripture, and the teaching that comes out, we're, we're to glean from and learn from and be corrected by and encouraged by the Word of God. The Word of God does all of this work for us. Paul praised the Bereans, remember, for being more righteous or more noble than the church in Thessalonica because they studied the Scriptures, it seemed like the one group was just going with whatever they felt like. Another one was actually, remember, imagine being the Bereans and Paul showing up to preach, right? And they're like, open, their, open the word and I say, I wonder if what he's saying is true. That's a good thing, right? And so that's what happened. It said that they, he said they were more noble for that reason. So Paul's, you know, God's man of faith and power. And what are they doing? They're checking him out. They're checking out his sermon. We should do that. Amen? We should make sure. So... Um, you know, we're not like the Gideon people, not like a Gideon uh, discerning God's will, you know. We might go to Starbucks and pray, God, if the coffee's hot and the napkin is cold, then I know your answer is yes. <laughs> you know? Or we don't say, God, if the napkin is hot and the coffee's cold, I know your answer is no, God. That's not what we do, right? We weigh everything as the Holy Spirit prompts us by the Word of God. The Word of God is important. And we never discount the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about His work in our lives. But here we land in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And Paul makes this transition. He says, uh, don't be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able, by testing, to know what is the true and perfect will of God. Wow. That's revelation. All of us need to move from information to revelation. When God begins to speak into your life because you've soaked in the word and you've let the Holy Spirit talk to you, um, then, then that's good. And that's the way he speaks. I want to read a couple of versions. I'm going to read the J.B. Phillips as well. But verse 3 in the ESV puts it this way. For by the grace given me to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now look at the way J.B. Phillips says, I don't know if I put this on the PowerPoint, but he reads this way. As your spiritual teacher... I give this piece of advice to each one of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance. <laughs> That's good, right? But try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. That is really good. Now, really the point is, is Paul is talking about unity and the family of God, the first point he makes is to be humble. He starts this part by saying, don't think of yourself more important than you should think of yourself, but be humble. He seems to be saying, don't be arrogant, right? And the caveat is added, among you. I mean, arrogance and, and, um, is really not discovered unless you're around other people. Then they will let you know real quick if you're arrogant or not. And if you're discerning, you'll catch it. And if you're not, you won't. Um, so he's setting us up for something, and we need, I think we need to understand that whatever he's setting us up for, he doesn't do it by accident, right? Paul always says something because he's ready, getting ready to say something else. So he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you should, because, and he's get, setting us up for this understanding, because you're in a family. Because you're in a family. You know what it's like to have that family member. Sure, you'll have Thanksgiving dinner, but you won't go on vacation with them. Come on now. Maybe you know that person, right? The family of God can kind of be the same. And we need to be careful that the first point we come to is humility. That we're willing to accept and show deference. Deference is, I defer my judgment about you because I understand where you're coming from. I, I, I accept you for who you are, even though I may have certain... Uh, convictions about something that you're not living up to, yet I'm going to say that you are growing in Christ, and I appreciate the level you're growing at and know that God's working in you. I can encourage you to strive to be better. I can encourage you to step out of those uh, bad habits or addictions. I want to, by the Holy Spirit, pray that God would convict you in a greater way, but no matter what, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to accept you. Then he says, um, a measure of faith. He uses this word measure of faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, in, in context is everything, right? So because he's talking about this, he, he really brings to bear the significance of the differences in the church family. And members are given different gifts in each, in each members of the church family. Each one of you in this room makes up and represents differing gifts in the Abundant Life Church family. Did you know in Scripture that the concept of communicating to the church is is more often communicated to the local church body the, the group of believers in a certain city or place than it is the church as a whole so that is really important to keep in mind 
when we read the specifics of Revelation and the seven churches and the, the things that Jesus has to say to each one of them, he is giving those churches an instruction for the things that they need, right? Now, we take that and we glean from that because it's good advice for everybody, but sometimes God points to a specific thing and he says, hey, this is what you're dealing with and I'm going to give you strength and help you. The measure of faith here isn't necessarily uh, only perhaps an amount that of the faith that he's given, but rather it's the kind of ministry that God has given uh, in love for you and I to be doing. So, for example, if you hate teaching on the other end of it, if you hate instruction, people who love instruction are most commonly teachers. If you hate instruction and, and you're called to, to teach a bunch of people and it's like pulling teeth for you to get to do that, well, then maybe that measure of faith isn't your gifting. However, have you noticed that if you were to put Reggie up here to preach today, um, he could probably do all right. He's a godly man. He knows the word. He could open the Bible. and he gives. But I know from knowing Reggie that his, uh, there's a certain proclivity of him that is very personal. He's going to be able to come and talk to you one at a time, get to know you, and he has a strength with that. He has a, he has a gift with that, that soft-spokenness and that little southern drawl that is in his voice. It's very welcoming, right? God has gifted him uniquely and given him that in his personality. God has given you faith for something else if it's not a teacher. If you're working uh, and accomplishing things, but you're thrown in, if you like to work and serve, and you're thrown into the locker room at halftime with a team that's 20 points down, and you're told to go in there and give them a pep talk, you're going to go, ah, 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 ah. You could probably do it, or you would do it, um, but you know that you're not the best. You'd rather pick up the broom how many are there, and you'd rather do the sweeping rather than, than try to do it. Well, your gift is not encouragement. Maybe that's not you necessarily. It's not that you couldn't do it or that God doesn't give you gifts for a certain time, amen? There are moments in life where God gifts us with things of Moses, for example. I mean, he, I can't speak, God. Uh, God said, you just need four words, Moses, just four. Let my people go. You, know, you can do that much, right, Moses? And so God calls him to do something. I can't speak. Remember, it was like, dude, put me in front of people. Put me in front of Pharaoh? No way. Like, I can't speak in front of second graders. I'm not going to be able to talk, you know, in front of the, the ruler of Egypt. So God empowers us at times, but you have a certain, can I use a big word, proclivity, right? You certainly have a certain uh, thing that you like to do or a gift that you have naturally that God has gifted you with. God's family is a unified family. Romans 12 and verse 4, he goes on, For as one body we have many members, and as members do not have all the same functions, so we, though many, are one body and individually members of one another. So, again, he's getting ready to explode on the way we should be behaving toward one another. And he begins by giving this great illustration of the body. It reminds me of, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul also goes on and said, because the hand is not the foot, it doesn't say, I don't like you. I don't want to be part of the body. That's a stupid argument, right? Because the hand or the foot is still part of the body. And he says, how can the eye, you know, say to the, to the mouth or the ear? You know, where would the sense of smelling if the ear said, hey, I don't like you, nose? I mean, it's, it's like a stupid argument. And he's saying something very profound. He's saying that our relationship as a family of God is one body. 
And he goes on to say, if one part suffers, they all suffer. How many have felt the weight, even this morning, we felt the weight of, of Josh's sickness, who's watching right now, I'm sure. Or we feel the weight of a, of a, a church family member's a death in the family. Or, or we, we, um, we're getting ready to celebrate in a few weeks. Anthony graduating, right? Anthony graduating, yay! <laughs> yeah, parents are like, get out of here! Go out! <laughs> Christine, I'm just kidding. That's not true. I know it's not true. It was for me, but probably not. I'm just kidding. But we hurt and we celebrate. We love and we cry. And we bear these things. And, and if you've been to our A2E4 prayer meetings, we have them twice a month, every second and fourth Sunday of the month, um, until summer. Then we're going to start doing Wednesdays for the summer break. But you feel that in the prayer meetings especially. We bear the burdens of the church, but more importantly, we bear the burdens of the spiritual significance of the church. And we sense that because we're one body. A unified church family reflects the very nature of God. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I want to go to 1 Corinthians. So I'll be in 1 Corinthians a little bit, but we'll be in mostly in Romans. So if you want to have your finger in both places in the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, the verse number 10, Paul also reflects this idea of what unity in the church family means. A unified church family reflects the nature of God. What does that mean? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So first he gives an impassioned plea to the Corinthian believers. Hey, I appeal to you guys that you would agree with each other. And if you know anything about the, uh, the Corinthian church, I think we're probably going to do Corinthians down the road at some point. But um, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, there's a, they're just a mess, right? I mean, they are just a there, it is a church that is just a mess. But anyway, he says, you guys need to acknowledge that you're not unified. You need to acknowledge that you're fighting and the direction that you're going is, is trying to hurt the church family. And Saul makes a plea with the whole church, not just the factions of the church, but the whole church. In Matthew 16, Jesus made a promise. He said, I will build my church. And so he absolutely guarantees the fact that he will establish the continued furtherance of the church. Praise God for that. That is awesome. And then in John 17, he prays an interesting prayer. He prayed that Christians in the church should be unified, one people, loving each other, just as the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God in perfect unity, living and trusting community. So Jesus prayed that the unity that he has with his Father and the Holy Spirit, would be like we have. Now, that's quite a tall order to live up to. With such a perfect unity that God has, Jesus prayed that we would have it too. Unity is not simply tolerance of all people, perspectives, and views. How many know that? There's a lot of perspectives out there. Unity doesn't mean that it's simply tolerance of all of these things. In the world today, we have this perspective that unity means sort of that we get, just get rid of all of our convictions, that we throw all the things that, that we deeply hold on to, that make us very distinctive as children of God, and everything that makes us uniquely Christian so that we can just be close and unified with everyone. This is not true. 
This is also part of the reason that Paul tells believers not to marry unbelievers. He says, ultimately, this is not going to work out, and it's not going to do well for the next generation, because one doesn't believe and one does, and so there's a conflict spiritually. You are in spiritual disharmony in this relationship. And if you are in such a relationship, an unsaved husband or wife, um, then pray for them. That God would save them and pull them. And I know that you must and that you do. And those of you who, if you're dating, if you're dating a non-believer, stop dating them. Paul is really combative here. And he, he doesn't compromise truth. And you know what? This is the reason he's always getting beat up. He, like, goes somewhere and he just, he doesn't, you know, he tells the truth. And the truth gets him in trouble, so he gets beat up. He's constantly getting beat up. Is just, just the way that he is. So, and basically, he does the same thing to the church in Corinth. If you guys don't get this, I'm, it's like dad in the car. I'm going to pull this car over if you two don't straighten up. You know? Oh, man, I've heard those words. Um, but that's what Paul is doing to the church in Corinth, saying, I'm going to pull the car over. You guys mm, straighten up. He's talking to, he's telling them to be unified. Unity does not mean either that we tolerate sin, that we tolerate error, that we tolerate false teaching or immorality. That's just simply not what unity means. And most people hear unity, that um, what unity means to them, they hear um, embrace everyone, embrace all perspectives, all moralities, all lifestyles, and all religions. And that's not what Paul's talking about. This, is, this will be true of the last day's preaching, right? That's what the Bible says. People won't tolerate the preaching of God's word. They won't like it when you, you can say anything else. But if you proclaim this or read this or talk about the principles of this, it, the scripture says in the last days it won't be tolerated. They'll follow all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And that will be the culture of the day. The spiritual focus will be uh, all about that rather than the word of God. It'll take, tr it'll take uh, more significance than the simple communication of God's word. God's word is enough. Unity also doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean we all need to be the same. If, if you go to church and they all have the same clothes on, they look the same, all the women are wearing the same thing, all the guys are wearing the same thing, you know, women have bun in the hair and dresses and men wear penny loafers and a suit and tie. Not that those things are necessarily bad, okay? I got in trouble one time for making a joke about that by somebody. And that's, that's, that's just, a, when I grew up, that was kind of the thing. I'm just saying if they all look the same, get out of the church, that's Jonestown, all right? You're getting ready to drink the Kool-Aid. It's not going to be good for you. It's a cult. It doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that. Let me talk about what unity is. Unity is the fruit of love, mercy, and grace. It is the product of what Paul is talking about. You know, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, in verse 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Faith should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. Love one another deeply. Why? Because it covers over a multitude of sins. Your, your spouse loves you. Some of you are going, you don't know why. 
Why do they love me? I'm such a creep, or I got this and that. Because love looks over the sock on the floor. It looks over the last time that you really got angry, right? Love looks past the habit that you seem to be nurturing, one spouse maybe or another, or in your family, love. And he's bringing it, uh, the Apostle Peter is bringing it to such a level where he is saying, this needs to be in the family of God. You know, your spiritual family is even more significant than your, than your physical one. Because look around, you're going to be spending eternity with each other. That's how important he puts the unity in the church, that it is a family. Love one another deeply because it covers up sin. Consider this, friends. Without the ability to forgive and to cover up offenses, there is no love and subsequently no unity. Love deep to forgive. Why? Because unforgiveness holds the one you have a problem with hostage. There can no, be no unity where there's, no, where there's tension. There, there just can't be. Love knows when it's better to be gracious than when it's to be right. Every man knows that, for sure. And so does every woman. Love knows how to comfort when there's a broken heart. Love one another deeply. Love knows people need grace. They are already judging themselves. Love deeply. Paul confronts the Corinthians. They're messed up. And so he gets very specific with them. And he says, uh, they, because they're saying, the Corinthian church is saying, hey, Paul, he's my guy. You know, I like Paul. Or, hey, I like Cephas. Or, I like Apollos. He's my guy. And they break into teams. Paul, he's my guy. He can fuck you in the eye, you know. And then there's the other one. Apollos, he's my man. He can do it. No one can. And so they're, they got these teams, and they put their jerseys on because they like them. You know, Paul, I like Paul. He's, he's got all this doctrine. He's just, he's just, and then some people are saying, I don't like him. He's got too much doctrine. He put people to sleep when he preaches. And then it's like, oh, I like Peter. You know, he's got that shadow ministry. Um, and everybody's going just to be in his shadow. He's got the shadow. He's got a better YouTube channel. You know, he looks better. People fall asleep and Paul's reading Peter. He's good. I like him. But I've been compared this way as well. Don't be compared this way. Unity in the family of God means that we are not comparing. We're rejoicing over what God is doing in our lives. Proverbs 6.16 goes on and it says, These six things the Lord hates, and seven are an abomination. The last thing is, he says, one who sows discord among the brothers. Oh boy, you want to be a target of something God hates? Sow discord among the brothers. Sow discord in the church. God hates the person, it says. I'm just like one who sows discord among the brothers. I am just like, God hates somebody? Well, I mean, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet swift to, uh, to running to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and one who sows discord. Don't be that one. Unity is a sign of maturity. In, in either way, a family and a marriage and the church, uh, unity is a sign of maturity. Unity is the fruit of, 
of, of love and faith, but it's a sign of maturity. Paul tells the Corinthians, they're acting like children, they're fighting, they're squabbling over craziness, who's following Paul, who's following Apollos, aren't we all Christians anyway? And later in chapter 13, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And then later in chapter 14, he says in verse 20, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. The writer of Hebrews says, solid foods for the mature. You know, in, in the way that you speak, Paul says, be an adult. In the way that you reason, grow up. Babies know nothing until they're taught. I know people who like to fight and always enjoy being angry. And Boy, I don't want to, you know. We need to get unity. How? People together, repentant and loving Repentant of their attitudes toward one another, dealing with preferences that become prejudices. Why? Because we're called to be unified. How? The simple ministry of God's word into our life, praying together and encouraging one another in love. Never been a, a fan of jumping on the latest bandwagon, but I have been a fan of the word of God. And it calls us to be unified. So he says, we're all individuals, we're all, but we're all members of one body. Now, take a look at this list because he's getting ready to tell us how to love each other. So in verse 6 of Romans 12, let's get back to our, our main text here. He says, having gifts differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I've been asked this question, what is the best spiritual gift? That's really the wrong question, isn't it? It's really the wrong question um, because that's like asking what the best tool is in my toolbox. If I'm going to nail off the floor, I'm not going to grab my ratchet, you know, and a socket. I'm going to get my nail gun and the compressor and the holes. That's what I'm going to use for the job. If, if, I, if I have um, some pipes that are struggling to maintain their integrity and overwhelmed with pressure, I'm, I'm probably not going to use my roto hammer. I'm going to go in my garage, and I'm going to get some pipe wrenches, uh, perhaps a saw if it's an ABS pipe. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to do the right thing with it, right? What is happening at hand or the task at hand in my job or the thing that I'm doing is what the tool is for the job. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. Everyone has been given a gift. And in that toolbox is all, are all of these gifts, and they are applied for different things. The tool selection is based on the job that needs to be done. So when Scripture says to eagerly desire, pursue the, the greater gifts, the best gift is the one that will be given to you by God for the task at hand. Know this, friends. When God calls you to do something, He will equip you to accomplish it. He will give you what you need to get it done. And so God has given you a measure of faith for the gifts or gift that he has given you within the body of Christ because you do have a certain strength about you. You do. If all of us do. There's a certain uh, a place that all of us fit. and We have certain strengths in, in different areas. And so here in Romans 12, Paul mentions uh, seven spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 17, um, in, in Ephesians, he mentions five. And the number of gifts, though, is not the focus. 
It really isn't. Um, the scope of what God can do goes beyond just what Paul lists in these letters, I'm sure. But the number of gifts, again, is not the focus. The fact that God gives one person two or one or three gifts uh, that's different from another person over here is, is not a competition. It's so that in unity together, all of those gifts can work perfectly in the body to accomplish the task at hand. It's not a competition because two people with the same gifts can have, have different personalities and both use their gifts in different ways. If you give uh, two teachers this same text of scripture, Romans chapter 12, that we're focusing on today, you're going to get two different sermons entirely. You're going to get two teachers that derive two different ways of illustrating it. They're going to have the same principles though. They're going to have the same message. They're going to be communicated differently because they come from different life experiences. And they come from different things. Every time we, we trade, every fourth week, we have, uh, Pete or Josh will preach. Um, and, and I'm not up here and I, uh, because I've over the text, man, I would say this and I would say that because it comes out of where I've been and what I've done and what the Holy Spirit is revealing to me. Well, the Holy Spirit reveals different illustrations to them. And you've seen this, right? But you've heard different preachers preach Psalm 23, 500,000 ways to one. But the principles are all the same. The illustrations are different. The life experiences are different. The anointing is unique and different on each one of them. The goodness of this is that we use the gifts. The instruction is that we go ahead and be a part of that. And, and then he goes on and he talks about how to do that. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. And he goes through them. And that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to take just a couple minutes here. When we look at prophecy, there's, there's a lot of illustration in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the prophets, in the New Testament, there's prophecy, right? So we have people who are not called prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament, and we have people who were called prophets that prophesied. In the Old Testament, we have prophets who foretold the future, and were called prof prophets, and they prophesied. But often, it wasn't foretelling as much as it was forthtelling. That they were they in, they spoke the word of God with boldness in their situation. Now, in the New Testament, we have people who prophesied about the future, like John in Revelation. Right? He has this grand vision, and he he talks about all the things that God is doing, and also in that preaches and gives instruction. Right. So his, his prophecy is also forthtelling. Peter, that the day of the Lord will come quickly, like, you know, a thief in the night, and the heavens and earth will be laid bare, and everything will be just this way. And, and he prophesies. He, he tells us what's coming. Paul, in the New Testament, in the last days, many will abandon the faith and give way to preachers of fables, displaying mystical powers over people. But we will not all sleep, but we all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump of God. Hallelujah. Praise God. He promised. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. They foretold, but they also foretold. We need people who foretell, speaking the word of God with boldness, speaking into a situation. And this is a New Testament idea. Remember Agabus in the book of Acts, and he gets Paul, and he kind of puts him on parade, and he pulls him up. How many have been in a service like this? And he pulls him up, he takes out this belt, and he puts his belt around his arm and Paul's arm. He said, the one whom this uh, arm is bound to will be bound in Jerusalem. You know, and I can imagine the church, oh, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. No, don't do it. And Paul's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. You know, that's just what Paul's going to do, He's, and he did it. So, um, So we have prophets that prophesied if serving he says in serving 
practical service. Diokone, which means is the word that we get our word deacon from. And it's, it's to serve the one who teaches and is teaching. The ability to clarify and interpret and explain texts of Scripture clearly. Ezra, the Bible says, Ezra read the Scriptures and he gave sense to them among the people. Wow, awesome. Uh, this is a needed gift today. Many times, uh, I think our churches and in, in the Assemblies of God, I think we pick the, the, most, whole pro, the most high profile, maybe the one who can fundraise the best or the one who is a real exhorter, maybe a good executive. Um, not all bad, but churches that look for pastors, sometimes who are teachers, they're, they're very small. And they're, you know, they're looking for someone who will visit the people and raise money and lead the board meeting and administrate the ministries. Not all bad, not all unimportant, but teachers are important. The one who exhorts, he says in his exhortation, parakelio is, is better translated encouraging. Maybe you're this kind of person. Maybe you like to, maybe you like to teach. Going back to last maybe you like to investigate stuff and find out how many like that. Boy, I do. I, I could do that all day. You like to investigate to see what's true, where it came from. How come we use spoons? I wonder why. Let's look it up. Where do it, what in the idea, you know, how come this prophecy of scripture is this way? Where did that come from? How, where, how did, who did he write it to? How come he wrote it? How come it's for me today? How come it's not for me today? What in the world's going on with this thing? I'm confused. Well, let's dive deeper. Then there's the exhorter. You know, the exhorter is the encourager, is the coach, right? And the teacher, I mean, for example, if, if I would love to just, as it, somebody maybe who teaches, I would love to share with you all the nuances about motorcycles. I, I mean, I, I would love to talk about the horsepower and the torque and the handling and the cornering ABS. I would love to talk to you about the, the way that this certain kind of motorcycle does this and the reason people buy this is because they like status. But we won't talk about that one too much. Uh, they they'll look at this and, and the way this one looks and, and, and does the, the performance. I'm all about performance. That's everything to me. I don't care how it looks. You could have drunk it out of a junkyard. If it goes fast, has lots of power, sits right, takes a corner, awesome, then and that's my kind of motorcycle. I don't care if it's a rust bucket. Praise God. As long as it's got a comfy seat. I'm good. Yeah, there we go. And I could tell you how to ride it. I'd like to tell you the specs on it, the horsepower, the torque. I, I'd love to go over all of that. And, I, you know, I, I, so I've investigated it. An exhorter will take that information that you learn and get you in the parking lot of Kmart somewhere. Do they still have Kmarts? I don't think so. A, a closed down Kmart parking lot where I taught my boys to ride and they'll get you on a bike and they'll show you how to feather the clutch out and how to get it going down the road and, and how they'll take you slow at first and they'll come back and they'll say you know this that was really great you know maybe try this or that this next time now let's get into second gear and you'll, you know that's an exhorter it goes from information to practical application. Um, he says everyone who contributes in generosity, people that love to meet practical needs. I, there are many of these kind of people in our church, and I'm constantly amazed at the givers we have in our church. They, they love to give. The one who leads with zeal, administrate, organize, make a clear path for people to succeed, and make sure that the, that the flow chart works properly. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Aren't they great? In verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. The word here is 
Anipocritos. Anipocritos was a Greek actor, and they would take a mask, and when they would put the mask on, they would talk differently. And so that you would think that this is a woman. Or then they oh, but I don't think so. And they'd put the different mask on. And but I wanted you to pick up the flower at the store. Oh, well, I didn't have time. And so when they would change the mask, they would put on a different voice. And that's what it means. It means hypocrisy. It means to pretend to be something you're not. It was literally wearing a mask. And so he says, don't have hypocritical love. Hypocritical is to... To say that you love, but not love. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He told him he loved, but he didn't love. He showed outward affection, but inwardly he was a traitor. And Paul uses this opening statement to once again draw our attention to the family of God. He puts it in context that we are be, to be unified and we are to not show hypocritical or wearing a mask kind of love appreciating the gifts that make us so different and unique and, and, and how one has a certain desire to do this or that. Unity brings a blessing to everyone. Paul uses this instance to focus our attention on the list of 30 different things. 30. It's quite a list to believe and practice so that we will be unified and truly be the family of God, exercising the gifts that God has given to each one of us, which all flow from, as he starts with, genuine love without hypocrisy. When Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, there, there's another powerful word that he uses, and he puts love right there. And he says, this is a, an important word. And in the English language, it's sort of difficult because Four million Greek words to one million English translation, it kind of loses its substance. So there's this, there's, there's, a, there's a word, eros in Greek, which is a sexual expression of love. Um, there's storge, which is family love. You know, I love you because I'm related to you. I'll, I'll defend my sibling on the playground, but we'll fight at home, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Um, that's family love. We love. We, we always do this thing. Blood is thick, right? It, it means a lot. Um, phileo, brotherly love. The word where we get Philadelphia from. It's, it's that kind of expression. You're my brother. I love you. And then there's this word called agape. And all the other words, eros, storge, phileo, they, they sort of have apostrophes or commas. Or um, not apostrophes. They have commas or semicolons, right? So I love you because you're beautiful and sexually you're you're attractive um i love you because you're my family member there's a because there's a qualification i love you because you're my brother i have this then there's agape love which really doesn't have any punctuation it's just i love you period there's no qualification to it it's 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 a god love that has no commas it has no it has no semicolons it, it doesn't have a list after it. It doesn't say, I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're my husband. It's, it's I love you, period. And Paul uses agape, the word here, and not to describe how God loves us. This only happens twice. It happens once here. He says, this is how you need to love each other. Agape. God, don't we all need to repent right now? Let's just close the service. Let's come to the altar. Um, 
he gives us this definition. And let me just read it. I, I don't want to preach it. I'm just going to read it. And let it, let just the word, the words are enough here. So let me just read verse 9 to the end of the chapter. I might stop it after verse 13 briefly, but let love, let agape love be genuine, without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. I like the section there says, don't be slothful in zeal. I like it when someone gets saved, they become zealous for God. That's the way they need to be where we have to tell them to hold, hold on. Hold, I'd rather hold back a racehorse than kick a donkey. You know what I'm saying? Come on now. That's the word of the day right there. <laughs> that was good. Praise God. Verse 4. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. <laughs> rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a radical way to love. This is a radical way to live. This is beyond the counsel of the world, for sure. Living this way is a severe departure from everything we learn from the time we're born until the time we leave the earth. A lot of things we're not taught that live, love this way outside of God's word anyway. This is fanatical. Some of you are fanatical. When football season comes, you're going to be a fan of attical ox. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, the teal and the blue, and the, they're going to come out, right? You're going to be like, yeah, Seahawks, that's all. You're going to live and breathe it. Some of you will miss church. Anyway, you'll become, because you're fanatical. We want to be fanatical for God's kind of love. This is the kind of thing. If Christians being fanatical, this is, a, this is radical. Being a Christian is very counterintuitive to these concepts are way different than anything taught in the world. They really are. Servants at the top? I, I don't, what? Outdo each other in showing honor? Bless those who persecute? Facebook. 
don't repay evil with evil? I-5. <laughs> Feed my enemies? I mean, this is love, right? These are, these are big ideas. This is love without hypocrisy, without discrimination, without prejudice. And you know what's so powerful about it? He exclusively gives this word to the family of God. We can't expect the world to be this way. We can't expect even our physical family that's not in the family of God to understand these things. He gives this to the family of God. This is just love without additives. No semicolons, no commas. And let me say something else about this kind of love. This is a kind of love that you and I are called to believe live and practice this is love is radical because this is the first way it was displayed it was it was radical and it was displayed on the cross the cross of jesus christ displayed this kind of love a radical salvation and love poured out his mercy and grace on everyone christians don't say that you're not about love you can't be a follower of jesus and not be about love it's impossible to know Jesus and, and not want to experience that love. You are the hands and feet of Jesus in love. You are the words of Jesus to your spouse, your children, and your family in love. You are the actions and power of God's love to all those who are in his family through love. By this, the Bible says, all will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. You know the power of this is that God's love is without hypocrisy toward you first. He is the one that has given you the great example. While you were still sinner against him, while you were still his enemy, the Bible says that he loved you. When you curse his name, he still loves you. When you deny him with your words, he still loves you. When you reject him with your actions, he still agapes you. When you fall into that familiar addiction over and over again. He still agapes you through your lust. He still loves you through your hate. He still loves you when it was your sin that hung him on the cross, that beat him to a pulp, that drove the nails through his hands and feet. While you were doing that, he still loves you. When it was your sin that swung the whip, God loves you genuinely. He loves you without hypocrisy. He loves you without discrimination. He makes you his family he calls you his kids he shares his glory with you he shares his name with you he has put his spirit on you to empower you and give your hope he loved you without hypocrisy we are called to show the same toward each other that's why Paul wrote this that because Jesus did it for us we are to give it to one another do we show the love and respect in the family of God that God has given to us? 